Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. In case you haven't noticed recently, living in the world can be dangerous. On any given day in the modern world, you could die in a plane crash, an automobile crash, or by a stray bullet. Eating can be hazardous to your health, depending on what you're eating. Even drinking water can be not good for you. Now, all of those are physical dangers, and we could go on and on and on. Breathing air in some places is a problem, as well as drinking the water and sleeping under an electric blanket or near electrical wires, and on and on and on it goes. We live in a dangerous world. All of that is physical. But I would like to suggest that we also live in a world that is dangerous spiritually. James warned us not to be spotted with the world. John said, don't love the world. And Paul said, don't be conformed to the world. So the spiritual dangers of living in the world is that we would be spotted by it, we would be in love with it, or conform to it. Those are the spiritual dangers in the world. So that just raises all kinds of questions. What do you mean by the world? Uh, When you talk about the physical world, that's obvious, but what do you mean when you talk about living in the world spiritually? What is the world? What is the danger of living in the world? Some Christian traditions have a word for this. They call it worldliness. That word is not in the Bible, but in some traditions, uh, that's a major and carnal doctrine, that you should not have worldliness in your life. Well, what is it? And if you become it, what are the consequences? Uh, Do you lose eternal life? Some would say yes to that, by the way. That's not the danger, and we would say it isn't. Then what is the danger of uh, living in the world spiritually? Well, those are some of the questions I'd like to answer tonight by looking at a story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. It graphically illustrates, and I mean graphically illustrates, the danger of living in the world and being affected by it spiritually. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 19? And we're going to look at the whole chapter, which consists of 38 verses. So rather than read them all at once, I'm going to read them as we go through the passage. So let's begin with verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, in order to appreciate that single statement, you need to remember that in chapter 18, 
three people came to Abraham, one of whom was called the angel of the Lord, which I think was a pre-incarnate Christ, and the other two were angels. Then we are told that they left the city of Hebron together, and at one point where you could see the city of Sodom, the two angels went on, and Abram, or Abraham, and the Lord had a conversation. Now, this is picking up where that left off, and it's simply saying, and the two angels, the Lord and Abraham got left back down the road, but the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. Now, that is deeply significant. In the Old Testament, the city had a gate, and that gate is where people congregated and a lot of times it's where the officials of the city met. It was something like city hall. What is fascinating is to look at the book of Genesis and trace Lot's relationship to the city of Sodom. In chapter 13, we're told, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then in chapter 14, we're told, he moved into Sodom and dwelt there. Then, in this verse, we're told, he was sitting at the gate. So, this means that Lot has become integrated with the city of Sodom. He's making his living there. He's transacting his business there. That's part of what is involved in being in the gate. And he is probably an official of the city, which is the significance of this word, in the gate. He was one of the leaders of Sodom, if you will. Now, what's significant is that Peter says Sodom vexed Lot's righteous soul. Interesting. Lot was a believer, and he had enough sense of righteousness that all the immorality that was going on in Sodom perplexed him and vexed him. At any rate, that sets the setting of what's about to happen. The latter part of verse 1 says, When Lot saw them, he arose, met them, bowed himself with his face toward the ground. This is just an oriental form of respect and greeting to them. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please. I don't think at this point he understood they were angels, but... Again, calling somebody Lord was an oriental greeting. Please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. Now, spending the night in the open square was very common. The weather permitted that. It'd be sort of like living in Los Angeles where you could just live outdoors, and it's not like living in uh, Michigan during the winter. Uh, so they, visitors, tourists, uh, travelers would come and just spend the night in the square. But given what we are going to find out about Sodom, that could have been dangerous, and Lot knew that. So he's simply trying to say to them, uh, no, 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 you need to come and spend the night with me, you don't need to run the risk of staying in the city square all night. Matter of fact, verse 3 says, He insisted strongly. 
So they turned into him and entered his house, and then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So there are visitors. Uh, he is extending hospitality, uh, an oriental tradition, certainly of a righteous man, and he is uh, entertaining them as his guest. The plot thickens. Verse 4. Before they lay down, that is, before they went to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. Now this is obviously... uh, a reference to homosexuality. Only it's probably more than that. It's probably a reference to homosexual rape. They are saying, hey, you've got some men in your house. Bring them out. We want to have a relationship with them. And if you will recall, that's why they came to the city. Remember in chapter 18, they said, we have come to investigate the city and See if it's the, the wickedness of that city has come up, cried out to heaven, and the Lord has sent us down here to check this place out. Well, they're getting firsthand evidence that this is as wicked as they heard. What is interesting is, and I think this is an important observation, is that the wickedness of Sodom permeated every segment of society. Look at verse 4. Both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So everybody was affected by the sin of homosexuality. And so they have come demanding that these guests be given to them. Verse 6, so Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, Do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason why they have come under the shadow of my roof. This is incredible. One way you can look at that is he was guarding his guest, which that is clearly going on. But uh, in the process, he is suggesting uh, that they commit a sin with his daughters, his virgin daughters. So he's going to prevent a sin by committing a sin, if that's conceivable. Uh, So this, this just doesn't look good. However, some have suggested this may have been a shrewd move. They were homosexuals. So offering them his daughters might not have put them in danger. Who knows what's going on? At any rate, that's as good a guess as any. Their reaction to his proposal I find most fascinating. Look at verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. 
Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against him, uh, against the man Lot, and came near to break down the door. I think this is really insightful. They said, you know what, that's just like what you're always doing. You're always judging us. Sound familiar? Some Christians stand up and say, that's wrong, and what's the world going to say? You're judging us. Well, that's exactly what they did. Uh, Lot was a righteous man. I think he got influenced by Sodom, uh, even the passage we've already seen. But uh, he, at least at some point, spoke out against what they were doing, and they accused him of being a judge. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands, that is these angels, and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they came, became very weary trying to find the door. So the one who was going to rescue got rescued he got rescued by the men he was trying to rescue. Uh, they, being angels, uh, smote these uh, men of Sodom. The text says, with blindness. This word does not appear very much in the Old Testament. And some have suggested that it might not have been blindness, but they were just dazed and confused. But whatever he struck them, they struck them with, it prevented them from continuing the assault and getting into the house. So, verse 12 says, Then the men of Sodom said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? And Lot said, Son-in-law, or they said, Son-in-law, your son, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. Now what's going on? Well, we know from chapter 18, they came to investigate the sin, and if it was there, God was going to judge the city. And so the angels are saying to him, uh, you need to get out before we destroy the city. As a matter of fact, verse 13 says that. Get out of town, get out of Dodge, for we will destroy this place because of the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So... He's simply saying, before the judgment, get out of town. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. They said, you got to be kidding me. God's going to judge the whole city? He's going to destroy the city? You crazy? Uh, you can just imagine all the arguments. A loving God wouldn't do that uh, kind of thing. You know, but they thought it was a joke. All right. I think what we've seen in these first 14 verses, which is the first subsection of this chapter, is simply the depravity of Sodom. And that Lot, though he was a righteous man, Second Peter says that, uh, he was influenced to some degree by this place, and as we're going to see, his children were even more so, so that 
I need to pause here for just a second and talk about being in the world. Would you say they were in the world? Yeah, I mean, all of us live in the world, but we don't all live in Sodom. Uh, so what does it mean to live in the world? What is the meaning of what is commonly called worldliness? Well, put your finger in Genesis. We're going to come back to that. And turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Uh, James talks about the world, and this is what he says. Verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, you want to be a friend of, uh, the, of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Now, this, I think, as much as any verse in the Bible, explains what it means to be conformed to the world or love the world or be spotted by the world. And what you need to understand by this verse is this. The word world means system. And when it is applied to the evil people living on the planet, it is the system that leaves God out and is opposed to God. And that is worldliness. It's leaving God out. That's all it is. Matter of fact, uh, turn to 1 John while we're at it. Uh, you get the same idea from 1 John chapter 2, where it says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there it is again. It's either the world or the Lord. If you are friendship with the world, you're an enemy of God. If you're boozing up to the world and they're your friends and you're being conformed to them and you're listening to them, then you're an enemy of God even though you're a believer. And in this passage, he says, if you love the world, then the love of the Father, you can't love the Father and love the world at the same time. Now, what is in the world? All right, so it's a system that leaves God out. But in the people that use the, throw around the word worldliness, they reduce it to a bunch of don't, don'ts, uh, a series of activities. You don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do. Uh, you don't dance, you don't play cards, you don't go to the theater. Uh, they don't preach that one as much anymore because of television. Uh, if you're going to throw out the movie theater, you've got to throw out television. But it's a series. That you, how many, you, you've been there, done that? I, I got saved in a Baptist church where that kind of stuff was preached. And if you, were, if you went to a movie, you were worldly. And if you played cards, you were worldly. But you could play Rook, you know? Yeah. You, you, could, you couldn't play the 52-deck kind, but you could play Rook or Monopoly, but you just couldn't play those evil, evil cards. I never could quite figure that out. Um, at any rate, uh, but the question is, I mean, is the Scripture against worldliness, if you want to use that term? Yeah, absolutely. The question is, what is it? Well, while you're looking at 1 John, look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. You want to know a biblical definition of what's in the world? It's the lust of the flesh. I'm going to live for pleasure. It's the lust of the eye. I'm going to live for possessions. It's materialism. It's the pride of life. I'm proud. Matter of fact, you could never go to a movie, play cards, or do any of the things on that list and be as worldly as they come if you were proud of the fact that you didn't do those things. The heart of the matter is that it's a matter of the heart. It's what's going on in your heart, and if you leave God out, that's worldly. That's worldly. Say, but yeah, aren't we supposed to be different than the world? Oh, absolutely. But what does that mean, that I don't go to a movie? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. How would you like to know what the Bible means when it says you're supposed to be different than the world? Would that be helpful? I'll turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul tells us what it means to be different from the world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but as much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God's put it in you, you work it out. For it it is the will of God who works in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I want that to sink in. Did you see that? Don't complain. Don't argue. Now look at the next verse. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul says, look, you live in a crooked and perverse generation. So how are you different? You don't complain. If you applied that standard, a whole bunch of Christians that think they aren't worldly are as worldly as they come because they are constantly complaining and disputing. Their attitude is showing. All right, back to Genesis chapter 19. Lot's been warned, get out of town. God is about to judge Sodom. So, let's pick up the story in verse 18. We've seen the depravity of Sodom. We're now going to look at the deliverance of Lot. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. Wow. They didn't want to go. It says they lingered. 
they were told, get out of town. God's going to judge this place. And they lingered. They didn't want to go. They had to be dragged out of town. Now, what kept them attached to Sodom? Who knows? Text doesn't say. But you can only imagine. Well, all our stuff is here. That's worldliness. All our relationships are here. And you've been a friend of the world, and you left God out of that part of your life. Our house is here. This is home. You don't want us to leave our home, do you? Well, the home isn't going to be here tomorrow. So, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to get out of town. But I want you to know, they hesitated, they lingered, they longed to stay in Sodom. And that is the essence of worldliness. They longed for the world and not listening to the Lord. Earlier in the book of Genesis, when God told Abraham to circumcise adults, he did it immediately. In this chapter, God tells Lot he's going to judge the city, and they have to be drug out of town, an indication of their attachment to the world. But I also want you to notice in these verses that God is merciful, even to carnal, worldly believers. So the latter part of verse 16 says, the Lord being merciful brought him out and set him outside of the city. Isn't that great? Did he deserve to be delivered? Nope. But the Lord is merciful even to carnal, backslidden, worldly believers. All right. There's more. Verse 17. And it came to pass, when they had brought them out of the city, outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Now, he's giving him some very specific instructions. Get out of town. That's escape. Do not look behind you. Don't look back. Nor stay anywhere in the plain. Don't stay. I mean, when the fire and brimstone comes down and destroys Sodom, if you're too close to it, you're going to be consumed. Don't stay anywhere near this thing. What do you do? You go to the mountains lest you be destroyed. You've got to get out of town and get far enough away out of town that you're not going to be destroyed by the fire and brimstone that's about to come down. Now, it doesn't say that in this verse, but um, uh, where they wanted him to go, perhaps, was the city of Zor, which was up in the mountains. So, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, Matter of fact, you've got to keep reading some of the passage. This really gets interesting. Verse 18. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords, 
Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one, that's Zor. Please let me escape there. It is not a little one, and my soul shall live. Said Zor was in the mountain. He wanted to escape to Zor, uh, which gets identified later. But the point is, he's saying, I don't want to go to the mountains. I could be killed there. Are you kidding me? Did you read what happened to this man in his life? Remember the kings from the east that came down and Abraham delivered him from the kings? God delivered him from the kings. In this chapter, God delivers him from the mob. The angels jerked him by the nap of the neck and pulled him back into the house or he'd have been killed by the mob. And he's worried about going to the mountains as God told him to? God will protect you. He didn't get the message. When Abraham was told about Lot, he immediately started interceding for Lot and praying that God would spare Lot and save, you know, ten righteous people in it. Lot has the exact opposite kind of attitude and action because Lot is infected with the world. He's leaving God out of the equation. If he had taken God into consideration, he would have listened to the Lord, he would have believed that the Lord could save him in the mountains, and he would have done what? Gone to the mountains. But he's leaving God out of his life. So, he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry. Escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. They concede. All right, uh, go to Zor. Uh, now, uh, I, and, and by the way, the angel says, I can't do anything till you get there. God is going to protect him against his will. <laughs> God is going to protect him in spite of himself which I think is an incredible testimony to the grace and mercy of God. So, verse 23 says, The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So, he overthrew those cities, all the plain, remember he said don't stay in the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on the ground. So, the Lord destroyed the cities of the plain. Now, earlier in Genesis, we were told there were five cities of the plain. He, he destroyed four of the five. He didn't destroy Zor because Lot was there. By the way, um, interesting little observation Look at verse um, uh, 23 again. It says, The Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. Does that strike you as an odd way to write a sentence? The Lord gets mentioned twice 
some have landed on that and said, well, that's to emphasize that the Lord is doing it. And some have said that may be a reference to two different members of the Trinity. At any rate, I thought it was interesting that it says it twice. Now, let's talk about the fire and brimstone for a minute. Uh, was that a natural phenomena? Some say this is nothing more than an earthquake or a volcano eruption, maybe including an earthquake, and maybe including lightning. God could have done it by natural means, but I think the tenor of the way this is described is that it was supernatural. It came out of heaven. Uh, I don't think an earthquake explains what happened. It was an exceptional, never-to-be-repeated event illustrating the fiery judgment of God that will come on the wicked later, even to our time. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, this is an illustration of that future judgment. The twin calamities of Noah and Lot illustrate Jesus' teaching of the suddenness of the coming of the Son of Man. That is, Jesus refers to both of these events in Luke chapter 17 to illustrate the suddenness with which the Son of Man is going to appear. All right, so this is a supernatural destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and two other cities. Let me say something about the location. I find this most interesting. Uh, there is in the Holy Land something called the Dead Sea. I know you've heard of that many, many times. The Dead Sea um, can be divided into two parts. There's a northern part and a southern part of the Dead Sea. The northern part today is very deep. In some places, it's 1,400 feet deep. The southern part of the Dead Sea is only about 10 miles long, and it's about 10 to 20 feet deep. There are archaeologists that theorize that the southern part of what is now the Dead Sea is the site and location of the four cities that got destroyed. As a matter of fact, um, archaeologists have discovered five large cities on the eastern side of the southern portion of the Dead Sea, and some are suggesting those are the destroyed cities of this chapter. I just think all of that is really fascinating. Brimstone is associated with sulfur, uh, though it is used of any inflammable substance. Until this day, the Dead Sea smells like sulfur. So I think there may be some indications that uh, we know where the cities that were destroyed are lo were located. All right, all that Lot gained from living in Sodom burned up. He was a businessman, probably had a house, a business, leader in the community, and all went up in smoke. Reminds you of the judgment seat of Christ. The apostle Peter cited Lot as an example of the Lord's deliverance of the godly from trials that he uses to punish the ungodly in 2 Peter chapter 2. John calls believers to love not the world nor the things that are in the world which will pass away. So this is the danger of living for the world 
in that you lose everything you worked for. And there's more. Look at verse 26. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Do you remember one of the instructions of the angels? Leave and don't look back. And she looked back. And the little phrase, looked, probably suggests that she was looking longingly at what she was leaving because she, her heart was in Sodom. All right. Since you became a pillar of salt, uh, was that a natural or a supernatural phenomenon? Was it instantaneous or gradual? The text doesn't answer those questions. Perhaps she was killed, some have suggested, by the poisonous flames and fiery destruction rained down from heaven. And once overcome, she apparently was not reached by the fire, but was salt-encrusted by the vapors of the salt sea, so that she literally became a pillar of salt. Uh, now, she, stag she lagged behind. So Lot and his daughters didn't see what was going on. They didn't look back or they to become pillars of salt. They, kept, they were way ahead of her. And when they turned around, finally, and looked back, uh, she was a pillar of salt. And again, we can ask, why did she look back? Uh, curiosity? I just want to see, maybe. Pity for her friends? Ah, that's probably a good guess. Sorrow for her loss? Yep, that's probably right, too. Here's what Jesus said about this passage. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. She lost her physical life because her heart was in the world. Living in the world can be dangerous. She, um, she knew the Lord, probably, but her life was in Sodom. Her heart was in the city. She looked longingly for house and home, comfort and convenience of Sodom. So, she perished. Now, uh, that's what this passage says. She just became a pillar of salt. I submit to you that Lot and his wife were both worldly. They lived in Sodom. Lot's wife looked longingly to return to the city that was about to be restored destroyed, and as a result, lost her life. The danger of living in the world, that is, being a worldly believer, could be the loss of your physical life. Not your spiritual life. If you know the Lord, that's sealed and settled. You'll not come into judgment. That's John 5, 24. But the danger of living in the world 
is that the world gets inside of you. The problem was not that they were in Sodom. The problem is that Sodom was in them. The problem is not that we are living in a wicked, crooked, perverse generation, to use Paul's terms. It's that some of that spots us, to use James' terms. That to some degree we become conformed to that element of the world that leaves God out. Now God won't judge us like he judges the world, but God does discipline us and will judge us at the judgment seat of Christ. So, it gets worse, as if it could get any worse. What I've done so far is talk about the depravity that was in Sodom. I've talked about the fact that Lot got delivered. I wish that were the end of the story. Now it degenerates into unimaginable sin. Look at verse, uh, where are we? Verse 30. Uh, All right, then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. The Lord protected you thus far. Don't you think he could protect you in Zor? And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. You think you're safe in the cave? Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come to us, as is the custom of all the earth. In this cave... There's no possibility of us getting married. There are no men in this cave. That's the point. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Well, you know, he didn't have sons. Uh, He just has us, daughters, and we don't want the family line to, you know, run out, so we're going to do this to preserve the family. So... Verse 33, they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know that she laid down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, it's your turn. Indeed, I laid with the father last night. Let's make him drink wine tonight, and you go in and lie with him, and we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know that she laid down or when she arose. Then both daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites at the time this book was written. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of of the people of Ammon to the day this book was written. Wow. If you leave God out, even if you know the Lord, there is no end to where you could end up. And this is a horrific illustration of that. Both of these daughters became, had sons that became ancestors of nations. Uh, 
These sons were the progenitors of the Moabites and the Amorites. Thus the story ends. Lot is never mentioned again in the book of Genesis. The Moabites and the Amorites are not only mentioned again, they end up at war with Israel. The Moabites and the Amorites eventually provide uh, the worst carnal seduction in the history of Israel. That is, they introduced Baal worship to Israel and other unbelievable religious perversions. Yet God graciously uh, is gracious. Israel was ordered not to touch the territory of the Moabites or the Amorites when they passed through the wilderness to get into the land. Ruth was a Moabitess. Remember that story? And she becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. One of the wives of Solomon, the mother of Rehoboam, was an ancestor of Jesus. And God promises to bring back the captivity of Moab in the later days in Jeremiah chapter 48. Today, the Moabites and the Amorites have mingled with the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael. The ancient territory of Moab and Ammon is modern Jordan. So Lot again demonstrates the danger of worldliness in the life of a believer. His life, wife lost her physical life, and Lot lost his spiritual life. Ended up with two daughters that are pregnant by him. So, as I started out, I suggested that living in the world could be dangerous spiritually. And all I mean by that is leaving God out can lead you into all kinds of perversion. So the sum is simple. God delivered Lot from Sodom before he judged it, but Sodom influenced Lot and his family. And that's the point. The danger of living in the world, that is being worldly, is that you lose your life. If not your physical life and physical death, you lose your spiritual life as well as possibly your physical life. So, somebody has traced the degeneration of Lot. First, he lifted up his eyes and saw Sodom, Genesis 13.10. Then he chose for himself to live in that city, Genesis 13.11. Then he moved his tent as far as Sodom, Genesis 13, 12. Then he sat at the gate of Sodom as one of the judges, Genesis 19, 1. Then he hesitated as Sodom's destruction loomed, Genesis 19, 16. Finally, he ended up committing incest with his daughters in a cave, Genesis 19, 30 through 38. How far it is possible for a believer to depart from God's will when he keeps making carnal decisions, that author says. So Lot lived in Sodom. As a result, he lost his children eternally. Remember the sons-in-law? They didn't leave. They died in the destruction of Sodom. He lost his wife physically. He lost his other two daughters spiritually. 
They didn't trust the Lord for husbands, and they committed incest. Lot was able to take his daughters out of Sodom, but he was not able to take Sodom out of his daughters. The danger of living in the world is losing your life, not your eternal life, your physical life, your business life, your family life, your social life, your spiritual life, and maybe your physical life, but not your eternal life. The story of Lot and his family provide a sobering reminder that all of our decisions have eternal significance. That's a very sobering thought. Even the decision as to where you live. They chose the wrong city to live in. There was no spiritual influence in that city, and that was their downfall. Lot, at least, clearly knew the Lord. He was a righteous man, according to Peter. But even that, being isolated from other people that knew the Lord, he was heavily influenced by Sodom. So, our moral environment significantly influences our lives. And for this and many other reasons, the New Testament constantly implores believers to fellowship with those of like precious faith. So some, some seemingly small decisions. Let's just pitch our tent towards Sodom. Well, let's just move. We know the Lord will we'll handle it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll set up a business. I'll, I'll, I'm a leader. And I tell them, matter of fact, I tell them so much it irritated them, they call me a judge. But you see, he left God out of decisions. And that was his downfall. In the little devotional book, Our Daily Bread, there's a story of a pastor who had three sons. One day, a strange dog came to their house. The dog's tail had three white hairs in it. An advertisement appeared in the paper asking for the return of the dog with the three white hairs in its tail. The pastor said, in the presence of his sons, he carefully separated the three hairs and removed them from the tail. The real owner heard where the dog was staying and came over to claiming. The pet seemed to recognize the owner, but the pastor said, didn't you say the dog had three white hairs in its tail? The answer, of course, was yes. And since the hairs were missing, they were unable to claim their dog. The pastor later said, according to this article, we kept the dog, but I lost my three boys for Christ. As he explained, the sons no longer had any confidence in what he preached because of what he practiced. Father, we live in a dangerous world spiritually. Grant us the grace to not be influenced by it because of our fellowship with other believers and our exposure to your word and our dependence upon your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.